Claritas is an industry leader in providing brands, agencies, and publishers with a complete closed-loop marketing platform to help marketers identify the right potential customers more precisely, deliver more effective multi-channel campaigns across audiences' preferred channels, and optimize campaigns more accurately and efficiently through a robust attribution and incremental lift analysis measuring both online and offline channels, including podcast, digital audio, and advanced television. Claritas's offerings are strengthened by the recent acquisition of Arts AI, integrating AI-powered technology to underpin an already robust identity graph, which fuels the accuracy, effectiveness, and efficiency of all their solutions. Claritas is committed to being an independent third-party partner, providing marketers with an unbiased and objective approach for building, executing, and measuring online and offline marketing campaigns. Find out more at claritas.com. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is an old friend. I'm thrilled to uh, be back in touch with you and to have you on Great Minds uh, here, Jillian. Uh, our guest today is Jillian Gibbs. Jillian is the founder and CEO of APR Consulting. She is one of the true leaders in our industry, uh, in the commercial production space, and sort of that intersection between marketers and brands and commercial production. She's the author of a white hot new book that just dropped, The Marketer's Guide to Creative Production. Uh, it is a how-to, very pragmatic book. I, th I think it's absolutely terrific. And I love that you are also a leader in the women-owned business movement, which is a movement worth supporting. So a hearty welcome to you, Jillian. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for that very lovely introduction. I'm really happy to be here and, and talking with you today. I'm excited. Absolutely fantastic. So, uh, Jillian, you uh, went to a great school that I think doesn't get talked about as much as it should. People talk about USC and Marshall, and they talk about Syracuse and the Newhouse School. But Ithaca College in the creative world, also a great, great school communication school, world-renowned. I'd love to start our conversation. We don't usually go all the way back to college days, but I'd love to talk about Ithaca a little bit because I think it gets underplayed. That is so true. That is so true. It's sort of, uh, it's up there in the same town as Cornell University, right? Uh, in the city of Ithaca. And it started out as a, a conservatory, a music conservatory, and then expanded to a liberal arts school. And I was just up there a couple of years ago they have done some major renovations uh, to their communication school. They combined the theater and the music and the art schools because of the integration of media today, which is, I think was brilliant on their part. Um, my teachers, I, I still am friends with, some of whom have retired and, and I, I speak to quite often. It's a, it's a wonderful school. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm a big fan. I did not go there, but one of my buddies did, and we went up there a number of times to visit. And I've come across a lot of Ithaca alumni in business over the years. And there were certain schools 
that sort of over index on how much we talk about them. Like I am not a Michigan person. I went to Emory, but I hear people all the time, Michigan, Michigan, you know, it's like a mafia uh, of people who went to Michigan. They love it so much. Like I liked Emory. I, I loved Atlanta. You know, I don't talk about Emory every day like Michigan people do, but Ithaca doesn't get talked about enough. And and I think they've produced, you know, a lot of brain power who's had a real influence in, in the creative and arts and in our business. Sure. In, in movies and in television, advertising all, all over. There's sort of quiet, su- successful people who are who are quietly succeeding, you know, and they don't wave that flag. I think I think it's really important. I'm going to do that, too. I'm going to talk more about Ithaca. I think and, and enough with Michigan already. I've had enough of the Michigan people. <laughs> enough of that. OK, so let's talk about uh, your tenure, give or take seven some odd years um, working at one of the great training grounds that our industry has ever produced and that's unilever talk about your journey there and your work there working as a production supervisor in one of the great bellwether brands that has always sort of been a little bit of ahead of the curve it's so true my experience at unilever i was young i was i was 21 just out of college and i had worked at a couple of advertising agencies first uh, Ogilvy and J. Walter Thompson, and maybe for six months, so like a minute. And then when I, I saw this job offer to work for the head of production at Unilever, this guy by the name of Al Tennyson, who was just, he was just a wonderful, wonderful man. And he took me under his wing. And um, my mom always said to me, Matt, dress for the part you want, not for the part you're in. For the role you're in right so i was i was going in suits and just you know like as you did and uh and al taught me he and, a, and another um mentor on the production side a guy by the name of russ Cohn. uh he he they both taught me everything that i needed to know about production which was enough to teach the people at unilever how they could be more valuable to their creative and their production partners in the process. And I realized I was onto something at, you know, by the time I was 25, I was running the department and that Unilever is an interesting company because of course it's a global business and each of the regions have their own agencies and creative partners. And there's, there's, there's little coordination for most global companies, there's little coordination across those regions and across the agencies Agencies are given assignments in silos, right? You're you're hired as an agency, you get the work, here's your work, then you hire the next agency, you give them the work, and they're, you know, whether it's PR or creative advertising or or social or or developing a documentary nowadays, you have separate scopes of work for each agency. And what I saw at Unilever, which I think was really important, which shaped me today, is that with just a little bit of coordination at the enterprise level for a brand you could make magic happen across their agencies. So that 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 experience, Unilever is an amazing company. And I, I really appreciate, I wish I can go back there. I don't know anybody there now. I wish I yeah, could go back. Yeah, no, we're, we're a couple or a couple generations removed. Uh, yeah. And you also spent some time in a production advisor role at another great company that did some tremendous work in the late 90s and early 2000s. And that was the Coors Brewing Company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Coors, I moved to Colorado and I, I, I knocked on their door and I said, hey, I used to work at Unilever as an employee and I'd like to work here. They said, um, okay, uh, what do you do? And I explained and they said, actually, 
you know, we just, they were working with a production consultancy out of Connecticut and they said it, it wasn't really working because we, they needed, they work so fast in the beer industry. You know, there was 10, 11, 12 brands all producing content and they, they, they didn't, that the time, the gap between Connecticut and Colorado wasn't serving them. So they just let them go like six months prior. I happened to knock on their door, like timing is everything. Right. And they said, Hey, um, let's try this as a consultant. And I said, okay, but I want to be an employee. And they said, no, 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 we're, we can't increase our overhead <laughs> as you do. So let's just try this. And uh, I did it. I worked there for, it was 13 years as a consultant for three years, actually, um, before I started APR, I realized that I could do this work really well. And I wanted to teach others how to do it. So I started to branch out. It was 1997 that I started there in 2000, I started APR. But at Coors Brewing Company, the work they did in the late 90s and early 2000s was, it was epic. It was, I would say, on par with what PepsiCo was doing around that same time or prior to that in the 80s. Uh, with the Beer Man, Coors Light Beer Man, uh, and Coors Light was, is a global brand. And so what they what they did to build that brand very efficiently, you know, the Beer Man commercials, we used to shoot two, three in a day and, and get a lot of value for shoot day. Um, and then there was the Coors original or the Coors banquet now, which is, I don't know if you've seen Yellowstone, but it's now like the brand on, uh, all over Yellowstone. That's a whole other wonderful story. <laughs> so take us behind the curtain, Jillian. We don't spend a lot of time talking about the engine room of commercial production. You know, we talk to a lot of creative leaders, media leaders, uh, less folks from your part of the world, which is really the part where it all comes together and you're really doing the heavy lifting. Take us behind the curtain of commercial production and it's a good segue where we're gonna end up, which is talking about the book and APR, but let's go back to those early days working in, in the field, doing some great creative work, as you said, at, at both Unilever and at Coors. Yeah, I think foundationally, the the glue that keeps commercial production together is are the people and the collaboration that happens behind the scenes. Uh, there's so much preparation. And what I realized first at Unilever and then at Coors is that the marketers are, they're busy, you know, strategizing on marketing things like bigger, bigger picture, consumer demographics, consumer behaviors, economic influence, you know, change changes in the industry that uh, that uh, shooting uh, any content like you know a TV commercial or or social content or now for connected TV all of the all of that is sort of it's the it it happens um and it's a really big deal to the production community to work on a project but it's only a very small part of a marketer's day or year you know so i realized that getting everybody into the room behind the scenes as you build up the plans for the campaigns is really important, and so it, it it was it was really um, just kind of a I don't know. I grew up in New York City, and my my mom and dad told me make sure that you're looking over your shoulder, making sure that you're bringing people along with you, also that there's not somebody hiding in the in an alleyway. <laughs> but but there, you know, be open to all people, and you don't know their stories, and 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 just kind of dig in and and get to know them better. So I, I did that both at Unilever and then at Coors. And, and I mean, I made friends with people that I'm still friends with now, you know, 30 years later, that, that really 
it's all about creating great work. So the, you know, behind the curtain, it's about really good communication. It's about understanding what the objectives are. And that's that the asking the right questions at the right time. You know, don't think that everybody has the answers. Absolutely. So let's break it down a little bit more in, in a granular fashion, if you will. So commercial production really sits in the middle between the marketer, you've got creative resources on the agency side, media resources, once that piece of work is created that will determine where it's seen, by who, what media, etc. But talk about that role that commercial production plays in the whole equation beyond being a great communicator and making sure the brand and the marketer is in the room. Yeah, reminding me of Hamilton, I wanna be in the room where it happens. Talk about where commercial production fits in that whole ecosystem. I, I love the musical Hamilton. Um, it, it's funny that you're, you're, not a lot of people talk about TV commercials anymore. You know, they talk about the the grand plan or the the content strategy, right? So the today, the commercial, the, the number of commercials being produced is, has reduced, you know, for traditional linear media, but the amount of video content has increased. So the, the you know, if you break it down, when you're producing a TV commercial with other content or other content with a TV commercial, right? It's not always led by the TV commercial anymore. The, the, um, the, the understanding of how you're going to use all that. What's the media plan? Um, are you producing? Are you overproducing? Is the juice worth the squeeze of the cost of the media for the asset that you're creating? How many deliverables do you actually need um, for your marketing? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, right now there's some data out there that says only um, 30 to 40% of what's produced actually gets used, which means that there's a lot of wastage, right? And, there's a few reasons why there's a lot of wastage, but the, but the, you know, the, the, the video assets are so powerful that sometimes you have to produce more than you need to get it right, which is okay. Right. You kind of have a, you kind of have to allow for that extra um, investment in producing more than you need so that you could test several varieties, several options. Uh, and then of course you have to have enough um, clearly in your budgeting to, iterate and make changes as, as you learn about the video assets. Um, it's interesting because half the industry, Matt, is still still working and behaving in the same way that they did, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago uh, in terms of producing those TV ads and leading with those. Even though intellectually they're thinking, I need to evolve. I need to create other things. I need to not make the TV commercial the star of the brand story. Um, it's really interesting because we're, we're sitting in this time where people who are from a traditional background um, want to change and, and can't change because they don't know anything different. So it, it's such an interesting area, Jillian. I, we have to go a little deeper. APR sits right in the middle of the conversation globally around helping marketers optimize the whole content creation ecosystem, television being part of that. Overall, we're gonna make you Judge Wapner and I'm gonna ask you to issue a ruling. How has the industry done 
on navigating a landscape that is dramatically different than it was when you started. And we're now in the midst of sort of a second iteration uh, of that revolution as the streamers, you know, really, really take a dominant position at the heart of the strike that we're in the midst of right now is that evolution, right? Everybody's trying to figure out how do I navigate all this tech driven change where the consumers have been huge beneficiaries, right? From as a consumer, you've never had more better stuff to choose from. Whether or not that works as a business underneath is a whole nother matter. But talk about how the commercial production world has navigated that change from your, you know, catbird seat. Gosh, there's so much there to unpack. Uh, in 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 my view, and globally, you know, region by region, from the UK and Europe to APAC and uh, Latin America and North America, the, the, I'm seeing similar things happen. So the First thing is that commercial production companies, famous for all the directors that they support, you know, they develop their careers and develop their talents, um, create opportunities for them. They have evolved their business models so that the, the, the traditional commercial production company now offers a, a, a cadre of, of services. Uh, in addition to producing with high-end directors, they have uh, for the commercials, they have, you know, the let's call it the low cost, high volume asset creation uh, for social media. Um, they were getting into uh, other relationships like um, building the creative ideas with the brands going directly to brands. So they've changed their model. They're developing bundles, you know, where they instead of being involved in a one off competitive bid scenario for a TV shoot. They're now open to and developing relationships with brands for a period of time, like give us your work for the next six months and we'll help you develop those campaigns and do them more efficiently. And there's a commitment on both sides. Uh, so those production companies have changed their model, which I, I really am glad to see. And uh, I think, I, and I'm seeing that everywhere around the world. And are there different parts of the world, Jillian, where you're seeing variants where somebody's a little ahead or a little behind? Yeah, I would say that the rest of the world outside of North America is a little ahead of, of North America because the they've always had the most money in North America and U.S. specifically. Canada works with less budgets and so does the rest of the world. And so they have had to, in the rest of the world, get really smarter and more thrifty in how they uh, approach their business and their and production. And so... Um, Interestingly enough, you know, if you're if you're in Europe right now and you're in the UK specifically and you're working in commercial production, you've got integrated campaigns, you've got, you know, you're using, you're partnering with visual effects houses, you're thinking more about virtual production. And in the US, I'm I'm sorry to say, I'm I'm seeing some pushback. Um, people wanting to do things the way that they were, like not even considering virtual production. Um, you know, a volumetric stage, you know, where you can shoot a lot in a studio. Um, in a short period of time because of the, um, the, the, the LED screens and the, 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 digital, uh, the digital content that is projected on those screens allows you to move from scene to scene. And especially when you're working in the beauty category, you know, with celebrities and models, that is an easy solution nowadays. And I'm, I'm hearing agencies push back and say, no, we'd rather be on a rooftop. We'd rather have, you know, deal with the weather issues. <laughs> 
And when they have limited time with those high-end models and celebrities, that's a difficult choice to make. So I'm seeing pushback because the money is there in the, in the U.S. Um, so that's kind of, that's a, I'm waiting for the U.S. to say, you know, okay, yeah, we're ready to change. Hoping the book helps. And I'd be remiss not to ask you, it's, a, it's an adjacent industry. What's your take on the strike? And uh, was this almost an inevitability that we would come to a moment like this? I mean, it's unfortunate, I think, um, that the strike is happening and going on so long because a, a lot of people are out of work, losing their homes. It's just, I, I think that the, you know, I've been involved for 30 years in all the Screen Actors Guild uh, negotiations for the for the commercials and um those are excluded from the strike right now so you know it is a good time to be shooting commercials with celebrities uh but the the strike itself i think because of the introdu introduction of ai last year to the entertainment space um and the the possibilities with ai which need people you know to to create and use ai in ways that benefit the, the entertainment industry and the advertising industry for that matter um i think that there's just over the years over 30 years every time there's a negotiation we have brought up the digital world and how it's changed and how you know even though there are more platforms and more more content it doesn't mean there's more eyes on the content because we only have you know one set of eyes and there, there, it doesn't mean we're seeing more. And so I think the, the, the for the actors anyway, um, the the issues with the actors is that their their belief is if you're creating more content, we should get paid more. When it's it's not realistic to think that you and I can see more than one thing at a time, really absorb it. So um, I think there's a disconnect between really what the the volume and what the what the what the needs are versus you know what is actually what should be paid for um i i i don't think it's a i don't think the actors are in a good position right now i don't i don't think so writers a different story um i i do think that we just the the contracts are archaic uh the language is archaic the it's it's not future proofed and it really needs to be rebooted re re redone and it's become a popular headline to talk about uh the advent of ai something that's actually been around for a while as a threat to the ecosystem how much of that is uh, just headline grabbing and how much of it is real hmm. i think um it's mostly headline grabbing i do i think it's just another tool in the toolbox that we have to learn how to use for both creativity and productivity, right? It's it, it helps us to be more efficient. It helps to give us options. It's very, very fast. Um, and I think it's a really useful tool. And I think the, I don't think there are jobs that are gonna be lost. And I know other people have said this, so I, I concur. I think people need to, the people who learn how to use AI are the people who are gonna be getting the jobs. Um, there's a lot of creative directors who have lost their jobs but it's not because of AI. It's because I think the industry is changing so much that the investment is going in other places, you know, planning and strategy and developing um, uh, more complex solutions for brands. Um, just writing copy is not enough anymore. Yeah, I, I think you know things move around 
They don't disappear entirely, but areas that were a strength may not necessarily, that's not a, uh, a lifetime guarantee. And I, I happen to agree with you, a lot of this is just about navigating change. So you said something before, and, and I wanna go back to it, that you came up with the concept for APR while you were working at, you know, doing work for cores. So the idea was brewing for a long time. APR, you've built an absolutely massive operation there with a true global footprint leading the industry, not just in America, but beyond. Give us the origin story. Was it a particular, was there that a boom moment that you can remember? And, and I'd love to sort of talk about that growth journey over a couple decades now. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I when I, they call me an accidental entrepreneur. And I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but it's like when you're an individual and you do something really well, and then you teach other people to do it, you um, end up growing a company, <laughs> right? It's like when I go out into my garden, I, I love growing vegetables and I plant a seed, you know, in the spring and in the fall, I've got all these vegetables and I inevitably I walk in the house every time I go from a seed, sting, this cucumber from a seed. And the, the reason that's relevant is because the business idea actually didn't form from a seed. It just ev evolved. It developed over time. And uh, I realized that the there was an opportunity to work smarter and better at this ecosystem level where you can see all the production activity going on because of all those agency scopes and production scopes that are assigned in silos no one except the cmo is really sitting at the enterprise level and and that cmo typically isn't involved at the at production activity level so we become partners to the cmo organization to help them to do that um and i realized that there were cost consultants out there you know people who evaluated the costs on a project by project basis but i think the value is in the in that catbird seat, as you described, you know, seeing so much and being able to go, oh, wait a minute, you don't have to shoot that. You know, we already have that beer pour shot into a glass. It's beautiful, you know, repurpose that. Um, that takes a, a little bit of coordination, but you have to be sitting in the catbird seat in order to, in order to see that, you know? Absolutely. And, and as an entrepreneur, uh, purposeful or inadvertent as the case may be, you've become a global leader in the industry. Give us your take on the trade groups that you've worked with, the ANA and the WFA. How plugged in are they to your world around production? Uh, and uh, in particular, variances that you might see from New York to Brussels, referring to both of those organizations. And full disclosure, we have friends at both. Oh, good. <laughs> Me too. Uh, both of those organizations are very meaningful, I think, to the industry. And there are uh, every country has an, an association, a marketing association uh, like that. And um, we have relationships with others, especially the ACA in Canada. Uh, they're very plugged in to the production space today. I have to say, I've been teaching courses for them, you know, in person and online forever. Uh, and they're, they just, it's like nice to have, they know it's covered, you know, because I'm, I'm doing that, but the production space hasn't really become a thing for them. Uh, 
for their for their leaders un, until recently because of the need to bring production up earlier in the process to plan better, to bring media closer to what you're producing and production closer to the media. So important nowadays. And so in the last three years, I think the conversation has changed and creative production is is a is a it's a it's an important topic and necessary. Whereas, um, you know, the bigger the bigger dollars are spent in media. And so that's always been even the 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 media mix modeling, you know, the formula for that doesn't even include the cost of creative production. It's just media and performance. Right. Um, and now I think that little missing ingredient is really important to get it to evolve and to get it right. And, and as brands build their own capabilities around content creation, how is that changing your landscape at APR? Well, that's a, that I think it's um, it's really interesting. About seventy five percent of our clients, uh, and we have seventy five clients, ironically, um, are uh, have some sort of in house, but twenty five percent don't because they rely on their agency partners, um, and uh, the in house teams are as good as the people involved, right? It's just like having another agency to manage. So in our world, it it hasn't been affected. In fact, we've just kind of revamped the way we provide support to those people who are in-house. Because I know, having come from in-house at Unilever and then at Coors, that you get sort of insular in your view and are a need access to the outside world, you know, benchmarks and understand training, you know, understanding what else what other people have done and where they've succeeded. So I think the the in-house teams um, for us, it's just like we treat them as a, another client agency partner. But like anywhere else, it's really the caliber of the people driving the effort. That's what's going to determine success. Well, let's talk about the book. That's an awfully big undertaking. Give us the genesis of the idea and how long from that first idea, I'm going to guess around a cup of coffee or a glass of wine to uh, coming to fruition and the drop date, which was just a few weeks ago. The book, so the, I had been teaching sort of a two-day masterclass to, to our clients forever, you know, since 1997. Um, again, I believe I'm using 1990s, but, but, but that's true. Uh, and so in about, about 2016, Someone from the ANA reached out and said, do you have a book on this topic? And I said, no, I don't, <laughs> but I do in my head. And so I took the class and I could worked it. I hired a ghostwriter back in 2016 to help me write the book. And she was amazing, but she kept, she kept asking me questions about my life and she kept turning the book into like the Jillian story. And I was like, no, I, I don't think that's what I want right now anyway. Maybe that's a, my second book. <laughs> Uh, maybe not, but I, what I really think we need is a, is a book that helps the marketers understand their role in the creative production process. So it, we, we created sort of a draft of it, 2016 timeframe, and my company started to grow so much in 2017, um, 2018, 2019, that I just put, kind of put it aside, but the bones of it was there. And then in 2020 COVID hit and live action shooting shut down. And I thought, well, the timing of launching this book's not very good. So we just sort of shifted our focus. I shifted my focus to helping, you know, creative uh, production uh, and agencies 
and clients just understand how to produce in a, diff, in a new world. And then um, last October, so 2022, I dusted it off and said, okay, now it's time to get this out there because creative production is on the rise in so many different ways, not with the, just the traditional TV commercial. I said, the timing is right. Let's do this. And um, I shared it with a lot of people. I thought it would have been out by April. <laughs> it didn't come out until August. So that it took a lot longer than I thought. But it's getting a great reception. It really, really is. I, I shared it with you know my team around the globe to make sure that it was it the nuances of the um, global production were in here. Basically, though, production is production is production around the world. It's the same. That's why you can travel all over the world and produce in many, many different cities because the way the the, the crew works, the way the talent works, it's all it's all the same. There are some nuances, um, but not big enough to make a, a to change the process. And so we did that internally. It takes a village to do something like this. Um, then I shared it with a whole bunch of industry uh, people that I respect who gave it a pre-read on the client side, on the agency side, some heads of production at um, holding companies, uh, some production company uh, owners, and also industry association people um, who everybody just gave me some great feedback uh, endorse the book and are just eager to collaborate, you know, and now get this out to as many people as possible. Well, what what a great, great story. Uh, uh, couldn't be more pleased for you. Um, be remiss not to mention the person who brought us together, our dear friend, Brian Curran. Uh, I met Brian when he was at DAS, part of the Omnicom family. Uh, later married my dear friend uh, Susan Lee. I was actually very proud to be the officiant of their wedding. How do you know Brian? So Brian and I met about six years ago when he left Omnicom DOS, right? Six, seven years ago. And uh, he was going out on his own to help companies in the marketing services space to succeed. And uh, I brought him on as an advisor, of which he still is to this day. Uh, so he's helped over the last six or seven years me to shape the strategy of the company and the executive team. And and I I met Susan since, and we've been to Broadway shows together, and they've been to my apartment in Manhattan, and and I'm hoping to go to their their place in Spain <laughs> in exchange. That sounds like a fair deal, a very 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 good deal for you, is what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, but he's a he's a really great advisor and and a superhuman being. Yeah, wonderful people. And uh, Susan and I have been friends forever. The very first advertising week in two thousand four, we took over Vanderbilt Hall and Grand Central Terminal, and we had four really really well done museum caliber exhibits. One celebrated, I think it was then sixty years of the Ad Council. One celebrated twenty five years of the I Love New York campaign. Another celebrated a similar anniversary for the what was then the Partnership for Drug-Free America. And the last one, which came from Susan, was a celebration of 100 years of Broadway and theatrical advertising. She was at Sereno Coin at that time. And it was so well done. I think I still have the book of everything that was in uh, that exhibit. Although the idea didn't really work, Jillian. You know, this is an early lesson. I figured we'll go to Vanderbilt Hall. It's literally Grand Central, the busiest train station in America. Mm -hmm. And other than the one night we had a big cocktail party with the Ed Council in there, which Peggy Conlon was running at the time, 
nobody stopped because everybody's running for their trains. Yes. <laughs> and and I, as a commuter, I should have put two and two together there. <laughs> you know, if my train's at, you know, seven o'clock, I'm there at 658. Yeah, nobody's lingering. <laughs> no, no, is it? The whole, the whole thing tanked. But the work that Susan did and the exhibits sure. were great. And that was the beginning of a, of a very long friendship, which endures to this day. And I love her and Brian. I'd love to see that, actually. Actually, I'd be remiss to, not to mention that it was Miles Peacock, who was the CEO of EG Plus at the time at Omnicom, who we were at a conference and he said, what are you doing with your company? And I said, oh, um, why do you ask? <laughs> he said, well, I, I know this guy and that. So it was Miles Peacock who introduced me to to Brian. Right, yeah. And, great, and opened up course. my eyes to really understanding how, you know, as an accidental entrepreneur, I didn't build a business to 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 sell it. I didn't build it to scale it. And now there's all these opportunities to think about mergers and um, acquisitions. And, and Brian really helped me really learn that. So well, it's an exciting time uh, in the content creation space. And uh, I'm sure you're thrilled to be in a part of the business that can still work right now with everything that's going on in the world, uh, labor wise. Uh, yeah. And this is an absolute joy and every continued success with the book. Uh, sounds like it's going great guns. Thank you, Matt. I, 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 I appreciate you doing this and spreading the word. Thank you.